0: Let's turn again in the Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. Again, can continue our studies in Isaiah 53 here in our communion services. Isaiah 53, we'll read together from the verse number 1. This is the Word of God, Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who hath believed or report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, But he was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities the chastisement of our peace is upon him and with his stripes we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned every one to his own way and the lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all amen may god encourage again our hearts in his word afresh today one of the most important and helpful spiritual disciplines is meditating upon the Word of God. Biblical meditation. Not the Eastern form whereby you try to empty your mind, but the biblical form whereby you try to fill your mind full with the Word of God and the truths of the Gospel. Such meditation involves taking a biblical text or part of a text and turning that text over in your mind, looking at the words one after another, Looking from one perspective, then turning around and looking at it from another perspective, meditating and chewing upon the word of the Lord—it is rightly determined a spiritual discipline. It takes time and determination. We we live in a world, and we are definitely prone to this ourselves. We do everything so very quickly. We want to read the Bible quickly, and again, I, I certainly commend. Uh, Bible reading programs where you read the Bible in a year or even faster, some of those programs, they're very helpful. But if you're going to do that, I encourage you, make sure those programs do not take over your Bible reading. That reading the Bible, they become the controlling influence, not a sense of God's Spirit leading and guiding you. You see, to meditate upon the Word of God takes time, and it takes the wisdom to stop and consider carefully a text that God has put upon your heart What is God saying to my soul? It's got a particular role when it comes to the Lord's table. Again, in historical Christian circles, it was often viewed when you come to the table, the preacher would bring a meditation upon God's word. The preacher, having allowed the word to permeate his soul, he would return that to the people. Again, an insight into meditation. And surely if we are to remember him, That remembrance must involve meditating upon the word in preparation for coming and in the celebration of the feast itself, meditating before arriving here, and then also engaging in meditation before we receive the elements. This morning, I want to turn our attention to the end of verse number 6 and turn these words over in our minds, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. This really is it's the Gospel 101. It's the very ABCs of what the Gospel is all about. How can a sinner be saved? It rests upon a concept that is a key concept to understanding salvation. That, that is the word that's imputation. Imputation is a concept upon which this text rests. Imputation is an accounting or a reckoning, a transfer of something from one party to another. At at times it has a financial aspect, you know, transferring or reckoning someone's money to another's account. Of course it's used chiefly in Romans chapter 4 where David describes the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputed or credited or accounts righteousness without works. The works They are not, again, earned by the individual. They are earned by another, uh, Christ himself. And yet his righteousness is imputed to the accounts of those who believe in him. There are three imputations in the word of God. Adam's sin is imputed to all his posterity. His guilt becomes or guilt. That's Romans 5. Death comes. Because all have sinned. And the sense is that we have uh, received again the guilt of Adam's sin. Beyond that there is of course the sin of the elect. Which is imputed to Christ Jesus. He has made sin for us and we'll see that of course today. The third one then is the righteousness of Christ. That is imputed to the elect. Those who believe in the Lord. And There are those three if you like chief acts of imputation in redemptive history. In each case... Something belongs to one party is reckoned to belong to the other. And here in our text today, the sins of the elect are reckoned to Christ Jesus. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And really this language gives explanation to what we've just seen in the previous verses. He hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. All of that language is then explained by this one clause at the end of verse number six, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. But as we meditate upon these verses, this verse, what are the thoughts that might come to your mind? If you're, again, reading through Isaiah, perhaps in your quiet times, and you find yourself struck by these words, well, how are you going to allow your mind to work? In what direction will it turn Well, you might think of this. You might see in these words the reason for Christ's sufferings. You you could see that very, very quickly. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all, giving explanation for the Lord's bruising, the Lord's wounding, for the Lord being stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. Now, of course, when it says in our text, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all, it does not mean for one second that the Lord becomes sinful. I think it's worth our time just pausing here. Iniquity as a word, the iniquity, can of course refer to sins that are performed. We do iniquity. Our acts of rebellion are iniquitous. They are iniquity. Along with words like sin itself and transgression, iniquity does at times denote the actual deeds of someone who disobeys the word of God. But what is interesting with the word iniquity is that word can also mean the punishment for sin. It's used in this way in our Bibles. The word iniquity not being used for the sin itself, but actually the consequence of that sin and the punishment of that sin. Remember Cain and Abel? Remember that situation where, again, there's there's sin there? Uh, and God punishes uh, Cain's sin, and Cain says, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Well, the word punishment that's used there is this word iniquity. My iniquity is greater than I can bear, but he's referring to the punishment of his sin. But you turn back to Leviticus chapter 7. Leviticus chapter 7, again, you'll see another example of this word being used, but in a word where or in a text where the word iniquity is not used to describe the actual sin, but the consequence of that sin. It's verse 18, it's referring again to those who, again, value the sanctity of the offerings, the peace offerings, and the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day. And it says there, at the end of verse 18, it shall be an abomination, those who eat of this sacrifice on the third day, and the soul that eateth it, shall bear his iniquity. Again, you're seeing the language being used here, the iniquity is the deed, but it's being used alongside the sense of bearing his iniquity. But it's referring to the punishment of that. Again, down in verse number 20, when it describes what this is about, even that soul shall be cut off from his people. That's the the punishment. What is the iniquity? It is being cut off from the people of God. And so for the Lord to bear our iniquity, or our iniquity to be laid upon Him, is describing the punishment of our iniquity being put upon Christ. Of course, that's consistent with New Testament language. He has made sin for us, Second Corinthians 5. That does not mean He becomes sinful any more than the parallel reference means that we become Righteous. He's made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. We don't become internally righteous in that sense. But we receive a perfect righteousness. And so Christ does not become internally sinful, but takes our sins upon Himself. He is, as Galatians 3 says, He's made a curse for us. He punishes. He's punished for our sin. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And so if you have a marginal version Uh, of the authorized version, and you've got uh, Isaiah 53 in front of you, you'll see the marginal reference in Isaiah 53, verse 6, says this, The Lord hath made the iniquity of us all to meet on Him. Uh, The sense of all the guilt of our sin being concentrated upon the person of Jesus Christ. The guilt of our sin that brings punishment. That guilt all meets upon Christ Jesus. He's wounded, punished for our iniquities. He receives the punishment of that. Punished because of the guilt that he incurs before God. He is not morally defiled, but he is legally guilty as he hangs upon the tree or iniquity was upon him in the sense that he takes an accountability for that sin and liable for the just punishment of that sin. This is gospel 101. Young folks, you need to know this. You need to explain this to others. You need to know this and talk this into your own soul. You see, when you're meditating here, you may sit upon this text and think to yourself, there's mercy with the Lord. And that may thrill your soul, but you get to verse number 6 of Isaiah 53, you've got to think about it carefully and say, this mercy comes to me without injury to God's justice. There's no harm done to God's perfect justice as he shows me his mercy. You know mercy because the punishment of sin is paid, but paid, of course, for you by another. And so you meditate here, don't you? The reason for Christ's sufferings. Well, you may go on in your mind, you may take this reference in your mind and you may turn it in a different direction and you may think, well, what about the realization of this in the Lord's sufferings? So if this text is referring to the Lord taking our punishment and our guilt, well, was it actually realized this is a Prophecy. So again, you're, you're meditating, you think, well, where do I find Isaiah 53, verse 6? I find it in prophetic scripture. This has not yet happened, and yet it's in the past tense. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all, but it's come with the, the certainty, that's the prophetic past tense, indicating the certainty of the Lord's work. And so you, you read that, and you think, well, did that happen? It's prophesied, it's explained in the epistles, But do we see it in the gospel record? And of course, the answer is yes. We find the Lord coming into this world and very, very early on in his public ministry, we find him identifying with sinners. John says, I can't baptize you. The Lord insists upon it. All obedience and part of Christ's obedience to the Lord's word was not only obeying what must have been God's command through John the Baptist to be baptized, but obeying the Father's eternal will that the Son would identify with sinners. Not becoming sinful, but identifying with them in baptism, indicating that God's purpose for him was that he would be a sin-bearing sacrifice. And of course, as you go on through the gospel narrative, you find the Lord coming to take the cup presented to him. We're in the garden in Gethsemane and we're the agonies of the Lord's sufferings. We feel the weight of His agony and He's presented with the cup. What is that cup? Well, we're in Isaiah. Turn back to Isaiah 51 and the verse number 17 because the reference to the cup in the gospel narrative is not a new concept to a Jewish reader. It's a concept drawn from the Old Testament. Isaiah 51 and the verse number 17 Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which has drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury, thus drunk in the dregs of the cup of trembling, and wrung them out. I'm just giving you one example. There are more than this. But the cup of God's wrath is consistently used as a picture of nations undergoing the punishment of God for sin. And so when Christ takes this cup, it is an agreement that he would suffer the punishment due for sin. He is not dying, uh, if you like, as a loving example, as a self-sacrificing man to show us what it is to suffer in this world. No, he's dying under the punishment of God's wrath, justly suffering for the iniquity of us all. And of course, you see that in the cross itself the baptism, the garden, and the cross, we find the Lord suffering the consequence of man's sin, the soul that sinneth it shall die. Adam, the day that is thereof, thou shalt surely die. And if you understand biblical definition of death, the final death is separation from God's. That is the second death where the soul cast into hell is separated from the grace of God altogether. No more enjoyment of the least of God's favor. And Christ, as he hangs upon the tree, quoting Psalm 22, says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That language only makes sense in terms of God's warning of the punishment of sin. So it is realized in experience. It is part of Christ's life in this earth. It is fulfilled. He suffers the punishment that we deserved. But more, you're continuing your meditations here and you're you're turning this around in your mind little by little and part by part. And then you, you think to yourself, well, I must spend some time thinking about those last three words of us all. These words mean something. I wonder what they could mean in our minds. And again, I encourage you, I remind you about the setting of these verses Again, we're so quick to get to Calvary, rightly so, in Isaiah 53, but sometimes we forget this is a, a, as a local and a particular context. Remember verse number one, who hath believed or report, if I take you back to, to January or thereabouts, we, we, we made it clear at that time that this is describing gospel rejection. That's what you have over in Romans chapter 10. Again, the words are there. Verse 15, How shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Again, we know Romans 9 through 11 a little bit now is dealing with Jewish rejection. But Isaiah 52 gives the assurance of those who will come and they'll bring this gospel, this good news of peace. But again, as verse 16 says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed or report? So Isaiah 53 verse 1 is fulfilled at least initially in the immediate Jewish rejection of their Messiah in the early part of that first century. It's fulfilled then. So in what sense can it be said, the Lord hath laid him the iniquity of us all? If the people identified in this section the we, because there is a transfer to whom is the arm of the Lord reveals indicates that though many did not believe the report, some did. Some did come to receive Christ. So there were those who rejected Christ who are then later on saved. They do believe the report by the power of God and they become a pattern for all of us who are saved. You think of the day of Pentecost. Those who are saved on the day of Pentecost among that number surely some who cry crucify him, crucify him. They reject the Lord. They are those described in our text as those who have sheep and they've gone astray. They've turned to their own way, turned away from God's way. But now... They be, become the children of God by God's grace. Christ rejecting sinners who are now saved by the virtue of his sufferings. By his stripes or with his stripes we are healed. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the point is clear. Christ died for those who scorned him. He died for those who rejected him. You think again of Acts chapter 6 when the deacons are appointed and the church advances Acts 6 verse 7 describes a great company of the priests being obedient to the faith. All of those priests, no time for the Lord, not a single priest in the upper room, perhaps, and yet they come to know the Lord, saved by God's grace. Again, there is a pattern for all of us. Christ's death is for all He will heal By taking the iniquity of them upon himself, he heals them by his stripes or with his stripes. His death delivers us from all of our sins, even the sin of unbelief. Some of you were saved very, very young, and you forget this. But even for a time as a child, you heard the gospel offer and did not receive it. There was a time in your life when you accepted Christ. There are not that many people in this world who receive Christ the first time they hear the gospel. There are some. Praise God, there are some. But for most, there is that period of gospel rejection and unbelief. It just reminds, doesn't it? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, though this passage describes the elect of God... We know from the rest of Scripture, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of the church, the sheep, the people of God. We understand that. I'm not going back over that. But though they were elect of God, yet by God's grace they are delivered from the guilt of their sin, from Adam's sin, from personal sin. Again, you've got to be clear in this. We understand that we've been elect of God before the foundation of the world, before time began. We were elect of God. It's also clear that Christ's death happened before we were all born. He died 2,000 years ago, securing our redemption. So in what sense can we say, while we were yet sinners, we weren't even born? Well, in this sense, Christ's death secures our pardon. And He gives us His mercy during times of unbelief. And then we come to faith in Him. But the point is, our eternal election or Christ's death 2,000 years ago, that has no avail until we come to believe the gospel. He dies for the ungodly, and it is absolutely necessary that we personally come to faith in Christ Jesus. And of course, we do so in humility. We meditate upon how unworthy we are of Christ's love. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Finally, in our meditations for today, we think about the result of this suffering. It's good to meditate upon these things, and you think about it, it says, The Lord have laid on him the iniquity of us all. I understand that now. It means that that my guilt was put upon him, my punishment met on him. That means there's no guilt or punishment will meet upon me. Not any of those for whom Christ has died will face the punishment of their sins. Not any. Of those from Christ has died will suffer the condemnation that Christ endured. Not any of those from Christ has died will suffer as Christ suffered. Those who trust in Christ can have the confidence that there is therefore now no condemnation. The mercy of God is coming in a just fashion. He shall bear our iniquity. He shall bear the punishment of our sins. He exhausts the justice of God for our sins fully. We don't need to pay one iota of anything else to satisfy God's justice for our sins. He has paid it all fully. And finally, there's nothing else that we must do to satisfy God's justice. The Lord hath laid on him all of the iniquity of us all. All the punishment that we are due is laid upon him, the infinite, eternal Son of God, God and man together, dying for our iniquities. We may feel the weight of past sin. We may feel the sense of our unworthiness. We may feel that, won't we? There are times in your meditations where you're overwhelmed by your own guilt and by your own sin. But please be clear, dear child of God, it is wrong to charge ourselves when God has pardoned us. That is wrong. I'm not saying you don't deal with with remaining sin. I'm not saying you skew sin. But who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? That includes yourself. You have no right to charge yourself when God is justified. That is the settled assurance of the child of God, not excusing sin, not ignoring remaining sin, but the sense so we charge ourselves and say, oh, I'm not worthy of God's favor. No, you're not, but you are in Christ. No condemnation. Again, that's how our passage will end later on. We come to these studies at the end. Verse number 11, By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He has paid it all, all to him we owe. May God bless these meditations to your hearts today. Such a well known text, such a familiar concept, and yet the children of God wrestle with it day by day. Am I really forgiven? Well, yes, but only if, only if our conference is in Christ Jesus.